we need that repository of human experience, however it comes to us. And um, part of my goal was to say, look around, it's everywhere. You know, these, just be amazed, be amazed at what we can, we can, we can all have an arc of a life that is heroic, even if on the outside, it doesn't seem to us that we're in any real, you know, we're not the, we're not the people who are going to have, you know, 7,000 obituaries when our life is over, but we will still have made, made our contribution and impact. Hello, and welcome to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right in to today's episode. Welcome to today's episode. Today, I have Marian Edgar Buddy, who is the bishop and spiritual leader of the Episcopal Diocese of Washington, D.C. She is also the author of a book that's coming out very soon at the end of May, and it is called How We Learned to Be Brave. So welcome, Bishop Buddy, and I will be, I just asked you, like, how do I refer to you? So if <laughs> I, if I, and I, you know what, and actually I'm so glad you told me how to pronounce your last name because yeah. that's usually where I struggle and I start recording and then I'm like, wait, did I not? Did, did I, I say it right? 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 No. No. And I'm glad I actually don't have my dogs next to me today because one of them, their name, one of them oh, was, I know. was Buddy. Lots, lots of <laughs> lots of dogs named Buddy. But so Buddy would be like, what? What? <laughs> Mom, again, you're talking to me? You're talking to me? So thank you so much for being on the podcast and for sharing your story. So let's start talking about you. I would like to know more about you, where you grew up and where you live now. And that usually helps me navigate the conversation. So where did you grow up? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for the invitation to speak with you. It's, it's a delight. So I am 63 years old and I grew up in a, in a divided household. So I spent a good portion of my life in New Jersey, living with my mother, and then also a significant portion of my adolescence with my father and his family, his new family in Colorado. So uh, a bit of, uh, it wasn't bouncing back and forth, but significant, like the early formative years with my mom, equally formative adolescent years with my dad in Colorado, and then eventually, because of um, circumstances in the family, returning to my mother when I was 17. So when people ask me, where did I grow up? It's always this interesting question of like, well, where, what was growing up and where, where did it happen? And it's, uh, as most stories are, there's a bit of complexity and nuance to that. 
yeah, and a lot of in between in that gray in between, a lot and of gray a lot of gray in between, yeah, and a lot. And I feel like even just from what you said of your parents and what I read even in the beginning of your book, yeah. the part of moving and the part of your parents going through divorce, and then also your dad going through a divorce with your right. stepmom and all that in itself really presented grief in a very early uh, timeline for you in just different ways, right, of these mm -hmm. changes and transitions in life. So how did you navigate those major moments then as a child when your parents mm -hmm. divorced and then later on then when your dad, as you're in high school, right. junior high, when he divorced from right. your stepmom? Um, well, keep in mind this, um, my parents divorced in the early 1960s. I was an infant. And so divorce in those years was uh, scandalous. And at least in, in the world, the middle-class world that uh, my parents occupied. So, and, and rare in, in those circles. And so, um, and my mother was, uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but my mother was deeply traumatized by the divorce. Uh, she didn't see it coming. She was left to raise two small children on her own. She's an immigrant from Sweden. Her family, all of her support system was back in, in Sweden. And, and so while I wasn't verbal in conscious of the growing up, grief was, a, was the ambience of my childhood. Grief and survival. And there was joy and there was love and I was safe but there was this pervasive sadness. And just to give you a couple of uh, very poignant vignettes that I remember, and this goes way back in my childhood. I was, I, was, I was three when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. I have this memory of my mother in front of the television, just weeping, just weeping. And I, and I knew that there was something momentous happening, but I didn't know what it was. And she was just so, so sad. Um, and that memory came back to me in an interesting way when Jackie Onassis died, because my mother and I happened to be in a, we were touring a museum or something, and and, uh, and she saw pictures of Jackie in those years, and she just stopped and was completely glued. And I realized I was looking at her life through the prism of her young adulthood. She was in her early 30s when all this happened. And her identification with Jackie and the grief that she felt. So I would say that that was, a, that was the background of my childhood. My father didn't really appear on the scene until I was older, and then my sister and I would go to visit. And there was something about his new life that I hungered for because it seemed so normal. He had remarried, they had a baby, there was this life that just seemed like what everybody else's life had. Like the picket fence type of life. All of that. I mean, it was all, it was pure fantasy, but it was my fantasy and my sister's fantasy. My sister's a bit older. And so through a um, equally traumatic and divisive custody battle, we moved to Colorado. Again, traumatizing our mother. And this time I had a hand in the, in the traumatizing, which I, I've had to reconcile with, you know, as an adult, looking back, I, I'm sort of humbled by a child's capacity to do that. Um, so I lived then with my father um, and his family, which was not a 
which was not a leave it to beaver family at all. It was, it was a, a house of some pretty significant dysfunction. Your dad um, struggled with depression and alcohol. depression, alcohol. Um, he really was trying to make it as a as an entrepreneur, businessman. He he reminded when I first saw the play Death of a Salesman by Arthur Miller, and I saw the character of Willie Loman, I thought, oh my gosh, that's my dad always wanting the big sale that was going to, you know, what he was going to make it. And he put a lot of um, emotional energy around this idea of making it big one day. And he never did. And he eventually declared bankruptcy and his drinking got worse. And my stepmother was desperate to try and hold things together. Their marriage deteriorated. I got caught in the middle of it. So, and, and in the meantime, because I was a child, going to school, making friends, having a life that became my own, I began to realize that you can, and I didn't have language for this at the time, Kendra, but it was human beings have this infinite capacity to compartmentalize. And so I I kind of held all of that sadness and chaos over, over on one side of my psyche as I did my best to live my life on another side, right? And in the beginning, I was constantly navigating and anxious and worried and scared. And then at some point at 17, 16 or 17, I just stopped caring. Like, you know, I was just going to live my life. And I found a life that I, friends and high school and music and theater. And then all of that came apart when my parents, stepmom and dad, dad and stepmom divorced. And I realized that the ground beneath me had completely collapsed. And as I write in the book, that was that was the first time in a conscious way I knew that I had a decision to make. And it didn't feel like, in some ways it didn't feel like a choice, but I knew I was making it. That the one person who had been the anchor through it all from a distance was my mom. And she had claimed her life. She had put the pieces back together. She stayed in touch with me even when I was really pretty mean to her, you know, as a teenager. And when I needed, you know, when I needed um, Harbor, she just said, I don't even remember, I can't even remember how we decided it, but I just knew, okay. And nobody in my world in Colorado, the adults in my world thought it was a good idea. They all were pretty keen on me staying where I was for all sorts of reasons that had to do both with religion and high school and care for me, care for, I don't know. And so I felt like I was stepping out on a limb, not knowing, knowing on some level, this was the hardest thing I'd ever done um, to that point, but also trusting that it was the right thing to do. And I, so it remains for me, even though, you know, a lot of years have passed. That's like a touchstone memory. You know, those memories that mark a person that I come back to, even when the circumstances are different. Oh, this is what it feels like when life is really hard and you have to step out anyway and trust that whatever is prompting you is trustworthy and you go. And, uh, and I can't tell you, it was like, again, it wasn't a happily ever after at all, but I am the person I am today in large measure because of what happened in those critical years as a teenager. Yeah. Thank you for, for sharing all that. And the 
chapter, I believe the first one is when when to know when to let go, right? What, what deciding to go, deciding when you know to it's go. time to go, to go, uh, leave leave one, which is which is which is the hero's journey. The yes. it's the it's the story of all literature. It's the story of any great um, coming of age. So it's it's entirely developmentally appropriate. But it also is spiritually, it's the story of every great spiritual tradition. But it is, um, each time a person goes through it, it's it's the journey, right? And so when to leave, how to leave, how to trust when you don't know exactly what's up ahead, and to become the person as you become the person you're becoming, you're beckoned to or summoned to by walking mm. or moving physically and, or other ways. Yeah. yeah, it definitely doesn't happen by sitting in your tushy. It, it doesn't no. happen by that. You got It takes work and it takes, yeah, stepping up to the plate. And I know there's an aspect of that yeah. too, of what that means even to you. What would that mean to you of stepping up to the plate? Would that even just be that, that aspect of taking action because bravery is not doing it. Ooh, I know exactly what I'm going to do. Right. What, what does being brave then mean to you? Because right there you were being brave as a teenager and it's not, and you were, you had fear, you had all these other emotions within that bravery of you letting go of what you knew to go back to your mom. And to the, you know, to the, to the title and the work that you do with this podcast, I just overwhelming grief, you know, Mm -hmm. just the undercurrent of grief and perhaps more than anything, learning at whatever age and relearning that all of those emotions are the, are the, the, the primal foundation upon which our lives are lived all the time and that they, um, they aren't meant to, not, how do I say this? Because we can get, we can feel stuck in them, but there is a summons that arises from them. And I, I do believe it is the life force within us, the, 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 the part of us inherently created to move toward life, even in the face of what is a death experience of any kind, um, which is unavoidable. And it comes in many forms, you know, um, but it, it rises out of that. And that I love that Eleanor Roosevelt maxim, you know, you, it, it is to do the thing you think you cannot do, you know, to do what you think is impossible, do it up until this moment you knew was impossible, but you do it anyway, not because you're feeling so, like you said, so competent or so brave. Although sometimes people feel that way, which is great. You know, every, I think I've had two experiences like that, where, you know, it's like, I can do this, but most of the time it's coming up against that utter feeling of vulnerability and truth be told of, of great risk because there are no guarantees, no guarantees whatsoever, but feeling summoned anyway, and taking either the first step or the hundredth on that, on that path. Or as I reflect on in another stage of the of my life, or at other times when the call isn't to go, but actually to stay where you are and to go deeper where you are, which is also another form of grief because you may be disappointed <laughs> with your life, or you wish for a different life, or you want to change, and and the call is well, actually, no, this time, the brave thing is to stay put, 
you know, and yeah. So I think I think the the bravery part is the it's a learning. It's not a it's not a capacity. It's a learning to lean into that constellation and trust that that's where you're meant to be, even when you fall flat on your face. Right. That's perfect. Like leaning into the fear, leaning yeah. into that unknown to then be able right. to just move forward. Right. Let me ask you before we move into then the part of what times in your life in which you decided to stay. Let me right. ask you what tools then did uh, you said you compartmentalized a lot that that was basically mm -hmm. one of the tools, whether that be it a mm -hmm. way that we would say um, is uh, that's the thing. We can't categorize what's an okay way of grieving or not because right, everybody right. has their own way. Everybody has their own way and what works for them. So what worked for you as a teenager to be able to move forward was compartmentalizing your life a little bit, correct? That was right. one of the tools. Was spirituality already one of the tools you already had even as a teenager as you were was, you know, was religion already there in the foundation of your life as well? Did you lean into God at that moment in assistance in your grief as you were struggling? What were some of these other tools that you used as a teenager? Frankly, that, that it was the most profound spiritual experience of my life to that point. And in, in large measure, because yes, I was I had become a professed Christian. I had been raised in a nominal Christian context with my mother. My father wasn't a practicing religious person at all. And I had become part of a cadre of young people that had fallen in with a, a couple of religious groups that I would, would be considered now, to use the language of today, um, fundamentalist, a very clear understanding of there is one path to salvation. Here is the path. Here is the prayer. Here is the community. Um, if you if you accept, and this is a Christian context, if you accept Jesus as your savior and you are part of this path, you are among the saved. And, and, and your job now is to help other people find that right path. So I had become part of a community in that broadly speaking worldview. And it had been a safe place for me. The people were kind. I did have um, an authentic spiritual longing. I, I never felt like I was as... Like whatever was supposed to happen to me in those in those experiences never quite took. Like I never felt like I was as saved as everybody else. But um, but I but it was my world and it was a point of reference for me. What was so transformative about that decision was that I felt that the inner voice of God was summoning me to go over against the external voices of authority, including my religious authorities, that were encouraging me to stay. And it created an incredible internal conflict at first. And I didn't really, the interesting thing looking back is I never really felt like I had to argue with anybody. Like I wasn't trying, and I wasn't angry. In fact, I was kind of grateful that they loved me enough to care but I also heard in their arguments or their reasons why things that I fundamentally inside myself did not believe to be true. Um, that if I went back to my mother, I would, in their words, fall back into sin because my mother wasn't on the saved path. 
and I just, you know, I, I just knew that wasn't right. You know, and I didn't, I didn't say that to anybody out loud it was like, yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I've never believed that. So to go into, so, so when I, when I followed that, I felt like I was being faithful to God in a way that I'd never experienced before. And it taught me at a very early age that you just never know where God's going to show up and what God's going to say. And you may, you may not always get it right. I mean, Lord knows, I know I don't always get it right. But to listen and to learn what it, the constellation of, I use that word a lot, but that combination of emotion and and thought and intuition that propels that propels us forward and to trust that God is there in the midst of it. And even if it's wrong, like even if I, that God will correct, will correct if I follow that. Does that make sense to follow? Oh, no. Listen, I get chills because I am, I follow, that's, that's kind of my guiding kind of force has always been that intuition, which it's like discerning what's, you know, I, I, and I, you know, sometimes intuition, your soul, your, you know, your, your God within what, you know, your communication, whatever everybody wants to kind of call that, but that inherent feeling, like you said, like, I just have to, like, it's this drive, like, you're like, it may not make sense. And I don't have words to make it make sense sometimes, but you just kind of know, and you just and, it, and right? or 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 risk. I, I've I've had enough. Um, I've had enough experience in life now to know that I'm willing to risk being wrong, yeah. following that impulse. Then I am. I, I feel better even if I even if it turns out not to be a life giving thing, having trusted that. Then I am when I don't act on it. Right. I also listen heavily to the wisdom voices in my life. I study the scriptures. I'm not, it's not like just me and God. I mean, I am a, I'm embedded in a tradition. I take it seriously. I ask people to help me with my blind spots, all of those things. But in those pivotal moments, I feel most connected to God when I take all of those pieces and say, okay, this is what I'm thinking. This is, this is what I'm hearing. And you've mentioned that following that, even when we're wrong, even if by chance following that was just not the right path, quote unquote, at the same time, the lessons we learned in that process were mm-hmm. the right ones for us in that moment as well. Right. So right. even for example, or, or good have- will come of it. Yeah. Good will come. Of- I mean, yeah. I just don't know what else to say because we, you know, obviously yeah. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a imperfect human being. I've got, I come from a culture. I've got all kinds of influences that I, I don't, I'm not even aware of. So I'm not in all a way assuming that it's always the most life affirming path. That's what I'm trying to say, or yes. that I'm not going to hurt people along the way. I mean, all of those things are part of my story. Um, but when I look back on those moments um, and why they're so, why they mark us in such a way, why they become the the, the turning points or the hooks that we that we can hang our life story on, right? And the narrative that becomes our story, that's one of the elements that I've come to cherish as a person of faith. And it, it deepens my love for God in, in the mystery of it all, you know? Now, Bishop Marianne, let's talk about uh, the part of then deciding to stay. 
You, which by the way, I want to touch on this too, because this is important in terms of your book. As we're talking here, we're talking a lot about your own life because that's Mm. what I do. I try to get more about Mm. people's lives, but your book has this beautiful way of intertwining history as well as biblical, biblical scripture in these stories of every one Mm -hmm. of these chapters of descriptions of, like you said, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt, you used Mm -hmm. her as an example of something. You use, you know, uh, scripture showing people in the Bible, you know, that figures in the Bible that resemble these type of uh, actions. Again, for the reader, just know you're going to be reading a little bit about you and a little bit the history and a little bit about the Bible literature and, and literature, oh. you know, I mean, cause it's the, the, these are these themes that, um, and, and other people in my life that have just been so inspiring to me. Right. So I find, I, I think one of the ways we learn courage is to be inspired by other brave people. And sometimes we think, and one of the reasons I love reading history and memoir and story is that we often put these people on pedestals or we see them only in their public persona or and then when we learn their stories we we find that the the path of courage in their life can give us can give us courage because of the the vulnerabilities that we learn are really universal in some way so that's that's why i did that and it's um yeah, if it were just Marianne's story, it would be very narrow compared to the breadth of, of what it could be. Well, that's yeah. the reason I have this podcast and why I interview people is because as people are listening, they can relate to someone's story or to an aspect of their journey in their own right. grief and their own experiences. You do yeah. learn a lot and you can say, oh, wait, I'm not the only one that feels this way or I'm exactly. not the only one that struggled with X, Y, Z. So Yeah, and I... I Not only that, Kendra, I think it also allows us to go deeper in our own experiences. Like we can trust if we have metaphor, if we have imagery, a line, an inspiration, it gives us courage, right? It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's that, um, so that's why we, we need that repository of human experience, however it comes to us. And, um, part of my goal was to say, look around, it's, everywhere you know these just be amazed be amazed at what we can we can we can all have an arc of a life that is heroic even if on the outside it doesn't seem to us that we are in any real you know we're not the we're not the people who are going to have you know 7000 obituaries when our life is over but we will still have made made our contribution an impact on even even if it is on one person's life it's still an impact Mm -hmm. the uh okay now the decision to stay so within your now and you're you're married we can talk about a little bit too about your own family now your husband paul where you live now and your own then career mission as a bishop Let's talk yeah. about that because then there were some, there's some grief in that aspect as well. Totally. totally. In your journey. Uh, so yeah, share with us no. that journey. So, uh, yes, I, I married, um, I, I, I became, um, I was ordained in the Episcopal tradition, which was the church that my mother, <laughs> the church I came back to and I went to live with my mom and found a, found a spiritual. The one that you're not yeah right the one yeah no you can't you can't go there um and 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 it's a very it's a very um 
it's interesting because it's a in terms of its religious practice, it's very kind of conservative and structured, but it's its theology and its view of the world is incredibly generous and open, open. And I found that to be so freeing. So I ultimately was ordained. I was ordained relatively young, married at the same time, two children pretty quickly. So um, after a young adulthood of a lot of movement, a lot of drama, a lot of big decisions, um, thinking I was going to be kind of on the margins of society. I had become enamored with justice movements around the world and um, saw myself. I felt my call was leading in that direction. And in my early 30s, where I found myself was married with two children in a job of as a priest in a congregation. And uh, my husband and I were now parents of these two little kids and everything felt really confining. And I was supposed to love it all. And on some level I did, but on another, I felt like in that kind of classic, is that all, is, is this it? Is this my life? And I would have these fantasies about other lives. Um, and what one of the insights of that period, and I realized I didn't know very much about stability. I didn't really, I, I had never, I had never learned the gift of stability. And what I felt the call was not, not so much for me at, in the early stages, but for my children, it's like, this is your time to stay where you are. This is the time to you embrace your life as it is. This is the time to look at the man you married and realize this is the man you married. And what does it look like to not run away, not, not run away isn't quite the right word. It wasn't such running away, but like kind of going, striving for the next big thing. Um, there wasn't any big thing. There was making sure that the kids had their lunches, you know, when in their backpacks when we went off to school and work in the morning and to make sure that they had their stories at night and to make sure that in the church that the budget was balanced and that the roof didn't leak. You know, there was just all this stuff of life and learning and having a few moments when, again, the feeling of the crisis building was emotionally similar to that feeling when of going, but the call was in the exact opposite direction in terms of movement. It was like, no, this is your, this is it. This is, this is your life, Marianne. And it's time for you to learn how to embrace it and to slow down. Um, because right now speed is not anyone's friend. Um, and that I, I had, I struggled with that so mightily at first. And, and it comes up, you know, it's a recurring theme. Um, but I learned, I learned the gift of long stretches of time, steady faithfulness, and trusting that um, even if there are really cool things happening elsewhere that I should be a part of, <laughs> my life and my work and my call is here. 
So you still, so this is Bishop Marianne still experiences FOMO. Yet she's, <laughs> oh my gosh, still, <laughs> even still, you know, it's like, wait a minute, I should be doing that. I should be, I should be there. Um, no, it's, it's a constant, it's a constant. And, um, and I think, you know, as a, as a, you know, it goes back to some pretty deep things in me. And I always used to look in the windows of other people's houses and think, I want to live in that house. You know, I want that family. I want, so to learn at a relatively old age, you know, and no, 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 this, that's not, you know, that's not your path. Um, trust that where you are now is where you're meant to be, whatever meant to be means, but this is your life. And I, I, I echo a story I, I tell of a, of a novelist who has that very, that her character has that kind of crisis moment where he realizes, oh my gosh, I'm not wasting my life. This, this is my life. Yes. Lean into it. Yeah. Lean into it. Uh, and, the, and then in that process of leaning in, you're, you're able to really, when you're present then in that life. Yeah. Because, by the way, when you're talking about like your life as a mom, of, I can so yeah. relate to that. I'm sure yeah. everybody listening to this would feel because even now my kids are teenagers. I was right. having conversations with like my sister and also with my husband's stuff. I'm like, I think that if you guys just had a driver and someone that came and cooked and cleaned, you wouldn't really even need me anymore. Right. It's like, you know, right. that kind of thing of actually feeling now I'm like, well, it's like, because all my advice, everything that I say, they just want to tune out. Right. So it's like you go into these two different contrasts when they were little, I could not have a moment in which I did not, I would be touched out as they say, they're all a year right. apart. And I was like, oh, when am I going to have my space? And now I have some space. I'm just the driver and the cook. But <laughs> I hear you. But, and, there's, and there's grief in both of those, right? In both of them. And it's, um, it's that acceptance of, of okay, this is, the, this is temporary. This is this moment. This is temporary. And I know it's part of this journey, but it, it's, it's mm -hmm. definitely hard yeah. to lean into it. Yeah. Let's talk about then this activist woman that you are to some extent or the 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 part of standing up and being brave you are very much inspired by some of also the figures yes. in history like Martin Luther King mm -hmm. was some his story and you stand up a lot for racial injustice so mm -hmm. would you talk into that and how that Right. is such, how that has been so important for you to stand up for racial right. injustice. Right. It goes way back. I mean, it goes, it, it's not a, like a new thing. It was always a part of my sense of call. Um, I was, as I mentioned earlier, very inspired by people who put everything on the line in their lives for God, for other human beings. Um, I was, uh, um, I didn't discover Martin Luther King until I was in college, even though I was eight years old when he died, in part because he, I just was in a, you know, I just wasn't part of our worldview. So I discovered him at that kind of, in, for, in that in very idealistic stage in my own life, right around the same time that religious leaders in Central America were being slaughtered for their solidarity with the people of their countries. And so that was deep in me. Um, and it never went away. 
So in every phase of my life, what, what always surprised me, because I thought I would be on the margins of society and living this brave life of you know, voluntary poverty and on the edge, and that was not to be. That's not the path that emerged for me. But discerning in whatever role I was in, what, what, am, I, what, what am I called to do? What, how can I be of use to this larger movement toward life and justice that is, um, that is also part of the human impulse, right? And uh, so while I was a, I was a, a, you know, I was a parish pastor for 25 years, most of my life focused on the communities that I pastored, but I also kept an eye on the wider community and did what I could. You know, it was, it never felt like enough. I never feel like I do enough. Um, I, I take a lot of solace from this one story in the Gospels where Jesus asks his disciples to offer what they have when a, a multitude of people are, starved, are really hungry at the end of the day and all the disciples have are you know, a few loaves of bread and some fish and they give it to him and he blesses it and the multitudes are satisfied. I feel like on some level, my life is one example after another of my saying to God, I can't, I don't have enough. And God saying, well, what do you got? And I offer it and it's part of something. Sometimes it's part of something bigger. So that's been, that's been a theme. And so I stay connected. Um, I'm a bishop now and I'm a bishop in Washington, D.C. And um, you, I could be a full-time activist if I, if I felt so. I could use my position that way. I don't see my position as a full-time activist because I'm also caring for 86 congregations and their leaders and their communities and all of the workings of spiritual community. Um, but the gospel imperative to justice is non-negotiable. And there are times when I feel I need to be there. Not always just giving voice because that's sort of easy, but I mean, it's not, not easy, but speaking is easier than actually showing up and changing things and working for change. So that's a part of me. It's, it's a relatively small part in terms of percentage of time. Every once in a while, it takes over my life. And it's like a season that just like a wave that just, okay, this is the, this, and I'm in one right now, this is the gun violence prevention season, right? So I'm back in it and it'll be all consuming for a while and then pass, pass the baton onto somebody else and go tend to the equivalent of my kids, but now they're congregations and um, care for them. Does that make sense? It's kind of an ebb and flow. Yes, um, yes. 86 and, congregations, you said? Yeah, 80, 86 and congregations. Wow. And um, and their leaders. And, you know, this is kind of a tough time for mainline Christianity. We're not, as institutions, we're not thriving. And so trying to discern what does it mean to thrive as spiritual institutions in this day and age. So we have a lot, you know, we have a lot going on. But And those issues of justice are internal as well as external. So there's lots of work to be done everywhere. But I, it, I've always felt, to answer your question, that being engaged for the good of the world is part of the call of every human being and 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 for me as a leader when I can. There's a part of integrity and justice that is also something that you seek when something's just, at least that's how it felt you with other, other religious leaders in uh, Washington, D.C. got together to stand up for something you did not feel was in integrity and in alignment 
with the yeah with the sacredness of religion and that's a June a June 2020 event June 1st yeah June 1st of 2020 right June 1st of 2020 so Tell us why it is that it came into the light that you came into the limelight as the, uh, in that in that moment as well, and that you touch on that as well in the book. Um, yeah, just to ex- sort of widen the camera frame a bit, just to remind everyone, this was at the we were still in the throes of the worst of the pandemic in the sense we didn't have vaccines yet. We were or very few vaccines. Everyone was you know, economically everything was shut down. There were an increasing numbers of instances that were building over time of very public deaths by, at the hands of police or vigilante citizens. And that was kind of cresting around the country. And then George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis at the hands of a police officer. So those that was the context. And my the communities I serve, lots of racial dynamics, lots of um, socioeconomic diversity, um, certainly uh, embedded in the institutions of Washington D.C. and its surroundings, the historic, the, the 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 legacy of all of the repercussions of slavery and Jim Crow and injustice against uh, people of color, black people, and specifically, so all of that was swirling, and um, the protests that emerged um, really just kind of took over the country uh, after George Floyd was murdered, came to Washington pretty quickly. Um, you know, they would just sort of, they started in Minneapolis and there was just this sort of uprising around the country. And um, one of our churches is right across the street from the White House. And we were, um, we and that park had become a gathering place for a lot of nonviolent protests. And and also some violence, you know, some arson, some, some destruction. Um, and we had decided that that church would be a way station of hospitality, of prayer, and also maybe a bit of a buffer, you know, just to be present to kind of keep, try to keep an even keel about things, just kind of. So we had, we had, we were beginning to organize people from around our churches to just show up every day and be there. It was usually pretty calm during the day. And um, at night, things got, things got a little intense. Um, and um, at the time, uh, the former president, and um, you know, I don't, I don't mean this in a partisan way, but he, his approach in that time wasn't to try and calm the country down. He was, he was actively, um, in my, in my opinion, he was actively inflaming the emotions. He threatened that day to to call in the military to all of the cities around the country where there were peaceful protests, right, just to shut them down militarily. It was just the first time. I had ever heard a um, a president threaten to use armed armed military against peaceful protesters. So that was pretty chilling, um, and that was happening in real time on that afternoon. And then, as I was I was sitting with my mother, who was living with me because of COVID, um, and we were watching television. She was watching the news, um, and it was televising this. Rose Garden press conference where the president was threatening to use violence. And then I started getting texts and messages on my phone that said to me that something was happening downtown and the president was getting ready to go to St. John's Church, our church across the street. 
and I didn't see it on our uh, whatever television station we were watching wasn't covering it, but I saw it afterwards. But in real time, people were calling me and texting me and saying, Bishop, you need to know that um, the park is being forcibly cleared with tear gas and um, police um, pressure. Um, the, the park's being forcibly cleared. Uh, the president is walking with his military. And just all this was just being texted to me on my phone. And then the phone started ringing. And do you know, Bishop, that the president is making his way towards St. John's Church? Do you know, Bishop, you need to? And so, um, and then and then the picture came and he stood in front of St. John's Church holding a Bible. And he stood there and he said, this is a great country. And they took a lot of pictures. And then he turned around and he left. And I was stunned. And what I felt in the moment was he had assumed a mantle of spiritual authority to justify this act of violence against in a, you know nonviolent protesters for the most part there were you know again there were a few people who were throwing rocks but by and large peaceful protest very deeply grieving angry people but and and then he used religion and he used the church in my charge to create this message as if to say we were one. I was doing this with not only political authority, but with religious authority. And I, I called a few people that I know have um, more wisdom than I around communications. And I said, I, I need help. I need, I need, I, I can't let, I can't let this be the, I can't, I can't let this go on. And the, and the minister of that particular congregation was out of town. And so it was I and one of the lay leaders of that community. And I just, and so a few people managed to connect me, one to a CNN interview by phone. And then to the, I, I called the, the religious editor of the Washington Post. And I just said, this is, I, I just, I have to disassociate. We do, we do not endorse this. It's all I said. Um, and that this was contrary to everything that we stood for. And that, um, and I was really just saying whatever came into my head. And the thing that made it what it was, Kendra, wasn't so much that I said it. It was there was a collective reaction to that moment that reflected the polarization of the country. So some were cheering him on, and others, like me, were stunned and horrified. And um, and I became the voice for a couple of days for the stunned and the horrified um, and to say, this is unacceptable. This is um, antithetical to what we believe in. This is not how we can resolve this tragedy. These protesters are, are expressing real grief and rage. Um, and, and we have, and, and what, for what, for whatever time. So that, that was the event, right? And it became larger than me simply because it was, a moment where eyes of the country were on it and the media picked up on it, right? Those two things don't happen very often. I've, I've spoken that a lot of times and nothing happened. No one's paying attention. <laughs> no one's paying attention. So you just sort of say, this is unacceptable. And people say, yeah, yawn and go on to their next thing. This just happened to be one of those moments where things, and all I, and what I, what I, what I said was every once in a while, those things happen. And they they don't they don't just fall out of the sky. There are certain things that have to, you, like like what's happening in I'm in, I'm in Nashville right now, and I'm I'm here in Nashville in part because 
of Justin Pearson and Justin Jones and what they just said and how the not just what they said, they've been saying it for years, but how the country has reacted to say, you know what, we actually have to do something about our children being killed. And we and to say that there's nothing to, that, that, that we can do is we're participating in a greater evil. And so when that happens, it's just good to know that you're there for a particular purpose. Now to imagine that's like that's going to live forever or that you those are those it's it's a very small moment in a long arc of struggle but in that moment claim it and then live your life as if you really meant what you said right um, so that's how that happened yeah um and like i said and people still think like people think that's like the most important thing I've ever done in my ministry. And if that's true, I'd be really sad because all, you know, it wasn't, but it happened to be a, the coming together of those things. And when you look back on say the civil rights movement or other movements for justice, there are these things that we hang on to, right? King's I have a dream speech or, you know, the um, Emmett Till's mother. I mean, these moments and they were important and people still talk about them. But they were one moment in a long arc of moments that brought about the change that we now consider normative. And every one of those moments matters. Um, and so it's, it's all yeah. these little like stepping stones right. that really create right. only that there's certain ones that end up being at a crossroads of something else that's happening in life. That exactly. particular stepping stone. And that's basically what happened in that moment. Yeah. That yeah. speech it's, for you and, that was right in yeah. that and it, it, um, crossroads. It also, I think, um, it becomes a, a an organizing moment for o- other things. That it just occurred. So a lot of times the things that people might think are the more, most poignant things in our life, they right. just happen to be in those kind of crossroads. Well, and they're, and they're super important. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just that they're, what precedes them and what follows are just as important just as important. And one of the things I write about, which I don't think we talk about enough, is that when you're caught in a moment of great drama, whatever it is, deciding to go, deciding to stay, stepping up to the plate, accepting what, after the drama ends and the adrenaline fades, there's this emptiness that follows, right? There's like this letdown, like I was so alive in that moment. And now, and I think that that's something we have to talk about too, which is Okay, then you get up the next morning and it's time to take out the garbage and you go about your life. And that's, you know, I mean, that's life, right? And Mm -hmm. and if you get addicted to those moments of like adrenaline and microphones and the line, you know, and for some moments, limelight, but even doesn't have to be that, just that sense of aliveness, you can get, you can get a really distorted view of what it means to be alive and what it means to be brave. And that's where I think going back, that's where I think grief comes in because grief grounds us and it keeps us connected to the pain that from which life emerges, right? The loss from which life emerges. And so to remember that and not to feel like it's a mistake when we get to those places, um, because they also tell us how alive we are, right? You know, that's, we are really alive then, even if nobody sees it, even if the only person experiencing it besides you is God or your puppy or your, you know, companion in life or your child, whatever it is, right? You know, that's, that's it too. 
So you have the sense of a wholeness of life um, that you can give thanks for. Oh, thank you, Bishop Marianne. It's just such a beautiful uh, array of stories that you share and something that comes that I feel is that it's somebody that has had the spiritual journey, yet you're showing your vulnerability, not only here in this interview, but in your book as well, that you we're still continuing yeah. to grow. We're always growing and learning and there's always room for improvement. Right. Always. We're constantly growing. So thank you for showing that. Now share with us when this book comes out, how people will get it. So it is called How We Learn to Be Brave. Thank you. How We Learn, How we learn to Be Brave, Decisive Moments in Life and Faith. It's, um, its release date is May 23rd. Um, and you can purchase it where you can pre-order it now, wherever you order books and be available for purchase um, uh, immediately after that day. Um, I hope people find it of value. I hope it is encouraging. It's meant to be an encouragement and a validation of the courage that lies within each person. And, um, and I'm really excited to be able to talk about it with you. Thank you. Well, I'm so grateful again that you chose this platform to share not only about your book, but about your life. And again, thank you for giving us this time in your busy day today as you yep. create some other little uh, stepping right. stones. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. So thank you once again. And, and I'll put the show notes, how people can also know, learn more about yeah, you. Aside absolutely. From that. Sure. Yeah. So thank you once again. Okay. This thank you. Bishop Marianne Buddy. Thank you. Okay, que te cuides. Bye. Ah, tú también. Oh, sí, no hablamos que sabes hablar español, ¿verdad? Okay. Chao. Chao. Thank you again so much for choosing to listen today. I hope that you can take away a few nuggets from today's episode that can bring you comfort in your times of grief. If so, it would mean so much to me if you would rate and comment on this episode and if you feel inspired in some way to share it with someone who may need to hear this please do so also if you or someone you know has a story of grief and gratitude that should be shared so that others can be inspired as well please reach out to me and thanks once again for tuning in to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. Have a beautiful day.